Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, where I, your host, Mark Ticano, talk to those who would know about what comedy is. Every day I'm grateful for the ability and opportunity to laugh and to those who create those opportunities. But does comedy mean the same to me as it does to them? In these interviews, I hope to find out. I love talking to comedians about comedy, and if you like to hear what they have to say as much as I do, then please like, subscribe, rate, review and share the podcast. Thank you. I met today's guest while I was volunteering at the Leicester Comedy Festival in 2020, the year he won that festival's award for Best Show. As well as an award-winning comedian, he's also a hard-working promoter, and we often cross paths at the festival, each of us rushing from one show to the next. Like me, he's passionate about comedy. Like me, he's a supporter of new and upcoming talent. And like me, he's charming and handsome. It's stand-up comedian Alex Hilton. Hello, Alex. Hello, mate. How are you? You all right? I'm good. How have you been? Yeah, not bad, thank you. So we can just jump right in if you're happy. Yeah, yeah let's do it. Man. Let's, um, yeah, let's crack on. Okay. First of all, tell me, how did you get introduced to comedy? Um, how did I get into comedy? I th- it sort of happened. I didn't know what stand-up was <laughs> for the first half of my life. I just, I'd never encountered it or experienced it. Mm-hmm. And then I was about 14, I think, and uh, a comedy club opened in my hometown mm-hmm. and I got bought some tickets for my birthday. And I didn't really know what a comedy club was. I think I thought I was going to see like a play. Right. Uh, I'm not really, I think the closest I'd come to comedy was like, I think like the Royal Variety show and stuff like that would be on TV. But yeah. it was never proper stand up and it'd be like, it's being hosted by you know, someone yeah. or whatever, never really. I, I kind of <laughs> encountered, like, entertainers, but not really stand-up. Yeah. Yeah, I went, I went to a comedy gig, and, I, like, me and my mate went from school and had just the loveliest time. And it was mm-hmm. closed. The gig was headlined by Patrick Monaghan. Right. Who uh, I was just baffled by. Like, I, I just, I loved it from start to finish. Mm. And I think I couldn't get my head around that it was just a man talking. Like, it's just a man talking. A mm. hundred people or a hundred people in this comedy club are clinging on to his every word and really enjoying it. Yeah. And you cannot prove, you cannot prove that he is good at what he does or bad at what he does. <laughs> because it, I, I was fascinated by how subjective it was. Yeah. And yet everybody had a good time. Everybody left that room thinking, oh, that was amazing. And I think yeah. part of that is because of who Patrick Monaghan is and his style, I think, Mm-hmm. And maybe if I'd seen a different comedian, I would have felt differently about it. I'm sure most people listening know who Patrick Monaghan is, but if anybody doesn't, uh, Patrick is a great stand-up comedian. But I think one of the things that he is best at is he really, you don't know where material stops and improvisation ends because he is yeah. so fluid mm. and so loose. And I think he interacts with the audience in such a way and riffs so frequently that it's very hard to tell what he has planned to say and what is coming out of the top of his head. Yeah. And I think... The audience always leave Patrick thinking the show was about them. And of course it is. Um, <laughs> I think because I saw Patrick, I was like, that is so cool. That yeah. is so cool that he just gets to be a cool and interesting person that has got life experience <laughs> and gets to rock up at a comedy gig and yeah. just be the star of the show. And I was like, I think I was about 14, maybe 15. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do in my life. Mm. And I saw it. And was like, I want to do that. That is like, I want to do that guy. <laughs> and I just became fascinated. So I went back to the comedy club almost every week as a teenager. And I would take a few mates. Mm-hmm. I think tickets were about a tenner. And I would, we would go and like, I would take a notepad with me and write down the name of everyone I saw. Yeah. And like, 
I would go every week, but I'd have to take like different notes because as much as they enjoyed it, there was no one who was quite into it. And I read every book, and I read, I watched as much stuff on TV and like mm-hmm. I would, as I possibly could, and get out. And I was like, all right, well, there's a comedy night on Saturday in Stafford where I grew up. But if we get the train, there's a comedy night in Wolverhampton that's like every third Friday. So I get about every third Friday. And like, if we go to Stoke, there's like one on a Wednesday. I'm really, really into it. <laughs> and I just, I knew I wanted to be a comedian, but right. I knew I wanted to do it, but I just didn't have the, well, I was a kid basically, so I didn't have the kind of capacity to do it. Mm. And then uh, I did one gig when I was 16 years old mm-hmm. that went okay. And then just from that point, it was like, right, I'm going to do it. And I went to university in Leicester, knowing yeah. that Leicester had a comedy scene. And I, in my first week of university, I did four gigs. So I knew the second that I went to university, I wanted to get on the open mic circuit. And because I'd, I'd read so much about comedy uh, that I, um, I knew – how comedy kind of works and I understand the industry and how like it, it, what to expect. And right. I think most people who start out in comedy don't know that. They just kind of eventually sign up to an open mic night or do a comedy course or whatever and kind of wander through it for six months until they learn the kind of politics and the yeah. whereas I like was so nerdy about comedy that I was going <laughs> to the open mic circuit and I like knew who people were before I met them. And I freaked yeah. a few people out going like, oh you must be uh like this person and I mean like I've done, I've done 50 gigs how do you know who I am and like oh well you posted on the West Midlands comedy forum and I'm like oh right yeah and I, was like, I used to read those as a weird fan yeah um, you wrote an article about a decade ago oh god yeah 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 in which um, you mentioned the Met Studio in Stafford yeah um, but also you were saying about in, in about two and a half years he collected uh, 100 ticket stubs from all the gigs so you were obviously as you were saying there, you just got an, an almost immediate passion for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can show you if you want. <laughs> I mean, I know this isn't a video, but I've still got those ticket stubs. I've got in the spare room. Uh, I sadly, I don't think I've got the one from the first ever show, but the stuff like I saw Dave Twentyman and Ivan Brackenbury do a two-hander. <laughs> wow uh, and there's stuff like Jimmy Tarbuck I went to see I think I was like the only person under 60 in the audience but I was like well it's <laughs> comedy in like my town so I'll go and do it yeah uh, and loads of stuff and then there's like I saw John Richardson do like a 45 minutes preview before he kind of broke and that kind of stuff and, yeah but yeah I used to keep all of them in like, in like a proper all of my friends were going to music gigs and kissing girls and stuff. And I was like, I'm going to watch a middle-aged man talk about his feelings. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. that, that article I wrote for uh, a website 10 years ago, I think my parents, when I told my parents I wanted to be a comedian, yeah, they were really, really not impressed. And I think I wrote an article to a website where basically they'll publish anything. I think I compared it to coming out. And I look back and I go, that's horrible. <laughs> and that's exactly, I think I was like 17 when I wrote that. And I withdraw almost everything I said in that article. Because I've, I've not read it for a long time, but I think I know what you mean. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think the first time we met was in 2020. And that was your debut hour which uh, you took to Edinburgh 2019. In 2020, it won Best Show at Leicester. Yes, yeah. I mean, that must have been some recognition for a debut hour. And, it, you know, your, your hometown, effectively, where you live. Uh, that must have been quite the uh, applauded. Yeah, it was nuts, I think. And the show, the, so that was Get Rich or Die Crying, yeah. which was a show, like my first hour. And it was kind of, I wanted it to be a, this is me, this is my, you know, who I am and what I do. Um, yeah. 
but also kind of have to talk about the things that were important to me. So there was a little bit of like social class. I think there was a little bit of just kind of um, chasing your dreams, but also the kind of self-awareness of knowing that comedy is a pipe dream and trying to do comedy as a career is ridiculous. Mm. And when you put any kind of rationality into trying to make this a job, it all falls apart. And that kind of like self-doubt, yeah. And I was trying to get that into a show and it's very hard to kind of articulate that in a way that is interesting and funny and not completely self-indulgent um, <laughs> and try and make it relatable. And I, I think the show did. And the weirdest thing was it went to Edinburgh mm. and everybody in comedy talks about your first hour as really, really important. And you only get one chance at your first hour at the Edinburgh Festival mm. and you should pour over it and strain over it for years and then you get to Edinburgh with your debut hour and you realise nobody gives a shit. Nobody gave a shit <laughs> it was my debut hour. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have PR representation. Mm. And I went to the Edinburgh Fringe with my debut hour that I'd been working on for years and reviewers didn't come. Uh, nobody from like the industry that I invited came. I, mm. I didn't have any kind of kudos or respect. And I think... But the risk is only quite negative. I think there's maybe about sort of 20 people, nearly all of them in London, mm-hmm. that their debut hour will be really, really important because the industry is already kind of aware of who they are. Right. They go and do their debut hour, and out of that 20, two or three will have an amazing Edinburgh Fringe and will have a great career at the back of it. Yeah. But the other couple of hundred people that are debuting up there, like, don't worry about it because it doesn't <laughs> matter. Where and I, The worst <laughs> part was... I won't. I don't. I don't think I'll ever do "Get Rich Die Crying" live again. So I will spoil the ending. But the worst part was it was all about me trying to make my career and trying to find sort of happiness through comedy and success and money. And actually, the ending of the show kind of pointed out the, the one thing that was under my nose the whole time was that I had a girlfriend who was really lovely and supportive, and that was the only good thing about my life. And maybe I should work on that, and that will make me happy. And then anything from comedy is a bonus. <laughs> And it was a lovely way to tie up the show. Mm. And about a week before the end of the Edinburgh Festival, we broke up whilst I was doing a show about how that person had basically saved my life. And then I later found out shortly after the Fringe ended that she'd been seeing somebody else for the last six months. So between like March and August, when I'd like registered the show for the brochure and taken it up there and was telling audiences at work in progress shows like how great everything was. Uh, my relationship was falling apart. Oh, man. And then to kind of do it in Leicester. Yeah. Uh, and it's a win best show. Yeah. Was really fulfilling. And I, and I think, like, it also felt that we, we'd broken up. And the message of the show was maybe I should just work on my own life and my relationships and worry about comedy less. Mm. And then actually, my relationship fell apart and my life fell apart. And I was absolutely miserable. And I very nearly became homeless. And I was just, everything was awful. And it felt like comedy had ruined my life. And then just as I thought, do you know what, maybe I should give up on comedy. I won a big award. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, you're awesome. And I was like, I'm really sad, but also thank you. And maybe I will try. Comedy's the only thing I've got now, so I might as well try and be successful. Was that a really bleak and miserable answer? I'm sorry if everyone's turned off by the point in the podcast. But... Not at all. I mean, it's, I mean, come on. on. Honesty is the best thing in comedy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that was that, that, that was the show that I think yeah. made me think. Yeah, yeah, I, I, comedy is the best thing I've got at this moment in time because it's just yeah. won an award. So maybe I should carry on with this and do another show. Yeah, and then I won best show, and I thought this year is going to be my year. Yeah, and my my new show 
was all about people should look on the bright side yeah. and everything's going to be fine. And then a week later, <laughs> yes, like a week later, the world ended, like coronavirus happened yeah. and everybody went, oh, you're going to have a massive year, mate. And like, if you win best show at, Edinburgh, at Leicester, you're like the bookies favorite yeah. for the Edinburgh Fringe later on. <laughs> and then in 2022, I went up there and was like, hey, hey guys, remember, remember me? And was like, no, I don't remember you at all. Who were you? You're a difficult pub quiz answer now. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, but then, yes, 2022, your difficult second album, another great show. Thank you, yeah. There was an article for um, the We Review. I don't know if you saw yeah. this one, Matthew Keeley, and he uses words like uh, surprising, gregarious, animated, friendly, you know, very uh, positive terminology. How do you feel about reviews in general and how do you feel that that show went down? Um I really wish I could say that I don't read reviews. <laughs> I'm very jealous of comedians that say, well, I don't read reviews. Well, I'm desperate for affection and attention. <laughs> and I will skew over everything that is ever written about me online. Yeah. So the chances of me missing a review are very, very limited because <laughs> I Google my own name on a regular basis and need approval. Um, I, I mean, I think uh, like the We Review review with Wizardly and yeah. um, there's a lot of comedians as well who go like, I really like it when I think if I remember the review rightly, the one you're referring to, mm. I think he says like, I'm a really nice guy. And I, like, that's a lovely, lovely thing to hear about yourself. Yeah. But there's, there's a, I, like, I want audiences to like me. I, I really do. And I, I I hope sort of day to day I'm a friendly and approachable person. I, don't, I would be really sad if people thought, oh, he's miserable or difficult or whatever. <laughs> I, I want to be like easy to talk to and easy to work with and so on. Hmm. And there's a lot of comedians and some comedians that I love that have said things like, no, it doesn't, you don't need the audience to like you to be funny. And that is true, but I really would prefer it if they did like me. <laughs> yeah. <they'd> like, <laughs> Like and like the comedians that I really enjoy watching, yeah. Uh, like Carl, Carl Donnelly is one of my absolute favourites, and I mm. I make a pilgrimage to see Carl every year. I've never gigged with Carl. I, I doubt Carl Donnelly even knows who I am. But I go and see Carl's show every single year, <laughs> and I think as funny as he is and like interesting and creative, mm. the thing that I most enjoy about going to see Carl's show yeah. is I think he's he's a lovely bloke to spend an hour with. Yeah. And I, I every time his show finishes, I look at my watch and go. That's flown by. What like? How quick has that gone? And not because you know he's like rushed it or it's half a show, like because it's just a lovely time. And I just watch yeah. it with a big smile on my face. And I would love to have a coffee with him and you know hear about his day. And I, I, that's kind of how I want people to enjoy my company. If you're going to ask him to come and spend money and be in a room with me, and the venues that I normally play at the Edinburgh Fringe are normally damn horrible venues that nobody else wants. <laughs> Is if people are going to come and sit in a wet cave or in a basement underneath a pub or whatever <laughs> shit venue I've got this year, is at least they go, well, he was a nice guy to kind of be around for a bit. Yeah. And especially the amount I sweat on stage. <laughs> you've got to kind of double up on the niceness to make sure they put up with the smell that I am producing after about 15 minutes of comedy. So it's um, it's always nice. It's always nice. Yeah, I can attest to that, listeners. Alex is a nice guy. For sure. Oh, thank you. And I think that's um that's admirable just to open up and be uh, a friendly, approachable person. And you reflect that on stage, I think, in your acts. Yeah, cheers. I, um, I mean, I, I try to remember faces yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I have very few fans, so <laughs> uh, there's not a lot of comedians that can remember all of their fans on a first name basis. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, it's uh, yeah, I try my best. I try my yeah. best. I think. 
I mean, it, it bothers me the other way. Like, I had, a, I had a bad review in Edinburgh this year, and it, it's ridiculous because every review is one person's yes. opinion. So it, it does not matter. And I think, like, it's really nice if you get a good one, but it, it's no no different getting a 500-word article written about you that says you're brilliant mm. to one person sending you a tweet that says you're not very funny. Like, they count the same. Yeah. Because it is just one person who bought one ticket. And actually, the person who tweeted you probably bought a ticket. The one who wrote the 500 word arc probably got him for free. So weirdly, <laughs> that person who tweeted you saying shit is worth more. I got, I got a review that was uh, two stars, which is the first time that's happened to me. Mm-hmm. And the weird way that, that's the first time that's happened <laughs> to me. Oh, God. But it's the first time I've had like a properly negative review. Okay. And uh, they didn't say anything positive to a point where it probably it read like a one, like they just didn't know a shit. But one of the things that really bothered me mm. was they said, and it made me like angry. Now, if you come to the show and you don't enjoy it, you don't think like you don't like my sense of humor or whatever, like I, I can live with that. I'm, I know I'm not so arrogant as to think that everybody will want to listen to me or will find me funny. I, I know that in a room full of people, there's always going to be someone that I'm not a cup of tea. I can live with that. Yeah. But the, the one line that stuck out with me and like it has stayed with me and I think will motivate me in like writing shows in the future was uh, this is a subpar show and Hilton knows it. And it like, wow. it made me livid because the implication there is that I am willingly selling tickets to a show that I think isn't good enough. Right. Uh, like uh, the way I take the inference that I take from that is you're suggesting that I um, a charlatan basically that, that I'm ripping like I'm knowingly ripping people off mm. and, and and B such a huge thing in the show that I, the last show that I probably that I talked about yeah. was like self-doubt and like that crippling voice in my head that maybe I shouldn't be a comedian maybe this is like I'm deluded yeah. and I think to watch that show and then put in a review, he knows he isn't good enough. Mm. It is, uh, I, I think, like willfully cruel. Yeah. And, and, and that, it, I, I, re- I shouldn't have done this. I think the showtime was eight o'clock, and I read that review about six. And by the time I got on stage, I was absolutely livid about it. Mm. And um, I gave, that, that day, I gave a subpar performance so i was thinking about it while i was on stage right. and every time the audience maybe didn't laugh where i wanted them to or anything didn't get what i thought it deserved mm. is what was immediately at the back of my head was like you're not good enough and you know you're not good enough and um mm. it, yeah 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 that, that's why it stayed with me and, and maybe you know uh, like it's ridiculous and maybe it's like my the way my brain works but when i'm having a good gig mm. i don't think of the nice reviews yeah. that go Oh, you're amazing, and you're the. Blah, 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 blah. I, but when I'm having a bad gig, yeah. I do think of that like you're, you know, you, you should be your shit, and you know you are. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm like a, yeah. Anyway. Well, maybe the lesson there is to find a good review and read that two hours before you go on stage. Yeah, I don't know. Is it Millikan's law though? Like every every gig, you shouldn't. Yeah. Let, whether it was good or bad, you shouldn't let a gig affect you after like lunchtime the next day. Yeah, yeah. The twenty-four hour rule. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Of those uh, 100 plus shows that you saw, was there anyone that inspired you or inspired the way you approach what you do? Like, g- genuinely, all of it. Yeah. I, I think there's um, there's so many acts that, uh, that I like, which, you know, I think with anything really, yeah. like, like it all kind of influences. I think when I first started, 
like early doors, I think I was probably guilty of like copying other comedians in a way of like, well, that that's what works. That's how a comedian talks. Right. And I didn't, it took me a long time to like find out what my voice was. I think I'm really susceptible. A, a few years ago, uh, I watched two Bill Burr specials back to back. And then I used the word, and then I had a gig in the evening and I used the word brutal on stage about 40 times. <laughs> I like Bill Burr. Like, oh, it's brutal. Just fucking. Um, and I, then I, afterwards I got home and I'd recorded it as I record a lot of gigs to kind of listen back. Yeah. And I realized I was like, don't, don't watch that much Bill Burr in one day because you're going to end up just copying Bill Burr. <laughs> and equally, I did it where I, I watched uh, James Acaster's like four shows they put on Netflix. Right. And I watched those sort of within about a week. And then I realized that I was like arching my back on stage and like pouting a lot more. <laughs> and like that sort of James Acaster kind of thing. And I was like, and it's all subconscious. I didn't ever go on stage going, oh, I should be more like James Acaster, but just yeah. kind of, so I, I try not to kind of think too much about other comedians yeah. and try and be myself or whatever. But I, I, I really like the, uh, I would like storytellers. I, I, just, I like the guys that are nice to be around. You know, yeah. I think, I think the thing that I've always wanted from comedy is not to be like a particular comedian, but the thing that I most want, like if 10 years from now, mm. you know, television might happen. You might, get to go do comedy abroad, mm -hmm. whatever. I don't control any of those things. But what I can control is writing good shows mm -hmm. that, and talking about things that I think are interesting and fun. And I would like to be at a point where people buy a ticket to see Alex Hilton and they look forward to it. I would like that. Yeah. And I think I'm starting to experience that a little bit where there's a handful of people that like look forward to what I do. And that's lovely. But I think I would like people to, when my tickets go on sale, mm -hmm. to buy a ticket and they put it in the diary and they look forward to it. And the day comes and they go, we're going to see Alex Hilton tonight. That would be nice. That's what, that's what I want from comedy. And I think the best way to achieve that mm. is to have your own kind of brand and your own distinct thing and yeah. maybe talk about things slightly differently to how everybody else on the circuit talks about things. Yeah. And I feel like I'm moving towards that, you know, and that's what yeah. I want. And that's slowly slowly getting better at yeah. yeah you talked there about being conscious of a way you've a, you've inadvertently adopted other people's styles how do you go about developing your niche your particular brand of what person you want to be on stage your, your on stage persona do comedy loads okay i think there's the answer <laughs> i think there's no quick way to find in your own voice right you just have to write loads of comedy and perform loads of comedy and i think i, I honestly think for me it was uh, like comparing made me better. And I don't enjoy comparing. Like, I do a lot of comparing, mm. but I enjoy it a lot less than doing a set or a show because I think doing a set, I just have to worry about what I'm saying. 90% <laughs> of what comes out of my mouth will be what I planned to say that evening. Yeah. And it's jokes that I know work and I find that much more relaxing. Yeah. Whereas with comparing, I find I get stressed about running the night and making it right for the other acts. And I feel like I have to kind of yeah. look after it. But also most of what you say when you're comparing, it's audience interaction and chatting to people and that kind of thing. And there's always an element of jeopardy that you might fall that up. Right. Well, yeah. comparing and running my own gigs, I think was a much quicker way to finding out what my voice is on stage. Because when I, like early doors doing the open mic circuit, I would write jokes and tell stories, mm. but mostly telling stories how I thought a comedian would tell a story. And that that right. 
was me thinking what a comedian should be. And that inevitably led to like basically stealing tropes and stylistic kind of things from more successful comedians. And actually, I, I wasn't being authentic. Whereas when you're comparing mm. and you're chatting to an audience member and you're encouraged to riff and improvise, you only got a split second to think about what you're saying and you find what comes out of your mouth is just, it's who you are, it's what you find funny. And I think that in itself was a much quicker way for me to find out who I am mm. on stage. And there's a lovely, lovely, lovely bit in Frank Skinner's autobiography and I would recommend Frank Skinner's first autobiography to yeah. anybody that wants to do comedy because A, it's a lovely... It's a brilliant autobiography anyway. He's a really interesting man with a great story to tell. But yeah. there is so much great advice for comedians yeah. that, that is still valid from like the early 90s through to now. It's still valid 30 years later, 40 years later almost, because it's uh, it, it's bang on. And part of that is just like comparing. You have to write, write new material every month and you have to kind of learn learn how to handle handle a live gig. And, I, and that, that was it. And I think, now I'm much more aware of what Alex Hilton thinks about stuff. And it makes it so much easier to write now mm. because my personality on stage, and one of the things that Frank talks about in the book is you should be yourself on stage, but you turn some elements of your personality up to 10 and other bits of your personality down to one and everything else you leave somewhere in between and you become yourself on stage. So you're just an exaggerated personality of yourself. And it means that, when I'm writing, it's a lot easier to just think about a subject and it goes, well, what does Alex Hilton think about, I don't know, biscuits or whatever? And then it goes, all right, well, I know what Alex thinks about biscuits and Alex thinks about this about biscuits. And that's yeah. a lot easier than just when you're first starting, it's like, say something funny about biscuits. And it's like, oh, <laughs> and I think you see so many new acts, very new acts, rely on like one-liners and puns and shock comedy and like, very quick, cheap laughs because it's like, oh, God, I've got to write about biscuits. So, like, what's the stupidest thing? And it ends mm. up just being like a, a pun or wordplay because that's our joke about biscuits. Yeah. But there's no substance to it or depth to it because um, they, don't, they don't know who they are yet. Yeah. We briefly mentioned riding high at the start of 2020 and then, of course, the outbreak of a global pandemic. How did you see your aspiring career uh change in that period of time what what were you were you able to do zoom gigs it was it was it as oppressive as it sounds it must have been um i, I mean it, it was it was so frustrating because i left the festival was february lockdown was march yeah and i, I did like maybe 25 gigs or something like that during leicester festival mm-hmm. and most of them were, were well and good and i think i think i think I did, I did four in one day on the last day of the festival which and they were all like quite big gigs and that sort of stuff and i, I remember the fourth gig of the day, I went, mm. so the, the Saturday 25th was the end of festival party. And I remember saying, it's like Leicester Comedy Festival, they throw this big thing and it's on like two in the morning and everyone's just, it's free beers and all that stuff. It's a really, really cool event to get invited to. Mm. And, it, uh, and I remember saying, I've got four gigs tomorrow. I, I, I shouldn't be here. And then it was like, I'll have one more, I'll have one more, I'll have one more. And then someone puts a beer in your hand <laughs> and someone tops you off. And before you know it, you're over at two. I ran a pub at the time, which was a seven-day-a-week job. So I ended up getting up at like 7 a.m. to sort the pub out so that I could not be in the pub all day. Did the four gigs. And the last one was opening for Tezilias in a shisha lounge, which was a very weird gig that got booked. I have no idea, (laughs) A, why that happened, and B, why a scrawny white man 
like got booked to do a gig <laughs> to 150 uh, like Turkish guys <laughs> who and they were awesome but I remember thinking like when the email came through like do you want to do this and I was thinking I am not the right booking for this at all but the money <laughs> is very good so I will happily die on my ass uh, full of people that had seen Tez online and on TV and just wanted to see Tez yeah. and I remember thinking this is going to be hard work because they don't want to see me I'm not the you know whatever and I did all right and I was knackered. I had three gigs. I've been up at like, I had like four hours of sleep. And I had three gigs before that. I was knackered. I could barely stay awake. And the like, the guy that ran the shisha bar was really excited to see Tez. And he gave us free shisha. And Tez was like, oh, you never had shisha before? And then like filled me full of shisha, which <laughs> is not good. I mean, I sound like, I have this accent. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. But like the 50, it's like 50 cigarettes in one shisha. Right? It was fucking nuts. I was just like tired, hungover, ill, playing a gig that I am just so inappropriate a booking for. And I did all right. And I remember coming off stage going, I've really leveled up here that I was able to kind of get through that and do an okay job. And then Tez went out and stormed it. And, you know, and, um, but I remember thinking, like, I've, I've leveled up here. And then I won the award for best show, and it was lovely. Yeah. And I thought, you know, comedy's going really well. I think maybe this can be a thing that I do full time, and maybe there's some success in this. Yeah. This year's going to be my year. And then the world ended, and the, the pub I'd just taken over um, was like an old Victorian pub that was a bit run down, and its reputation wasn't great. Mm. And I took lockdown. I didn't want to be the kind of landlord that was the last landlord of the pub. So I just I wanted to keep the pub surviving, yeah. And I, I threw myself into we were going to do we did takeaway beers and we did delivery and all that kind of stuff, yeah. And it was trying to keep the staff employed and you know and all that kind of stuff to worry about. But that took up all my time, and I just didn't think about comedy much for a year. I did like a couple of stand up like Zoom gigs, but not many. And then comedy came back. Oh, I think like summer. 2021 and then right. but Leicester was still in lockdown which is which is where I live so I, mm-hmm. like, I couldn't leave the city and live events were cancelled and I was watching on Facebook kind of every all the other comedians doing gigs and like oh comedy's back and we're doing comedy outdoors and in marquees and all that sort of stuff and I was like oh god everyone's great and, and I just I when we finally got back to it I hadn't been a live gig in about 18 months it was like oh god I, 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 I don't know if I can still do this and even when we were finally allowed to come back. It meant pubs yeah. reopened. So the pub was crazy busy and it was really, really hard work to run the pub because it was table service and test and trace and all that kind of jazz. Yeah. But it was like, I can't just leave bar staff to run this. I need to kind of be around here to kind of manage it. And juggling mm-hmm. that with comedy and it really thought, you know, this is, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't fresh and ready really to go back. Mm-hmm. And it was only, I, I gave up the pub in July, 2022 to do comedy full-time, which is where I'm at now. Yeah. And it's the best decision I ever made, and I love I loved that building, and I'm so proud that we turned this dilapidated corner pub into a <laughs> popular and welcoming, safe place that's a there's really nice beer, and it's still an authentic Victorian pub. Um, but it's so good just being able to do comedy full-time again and be back. And I feel like I'm now starting to catch up with where I was in 2020, where I thought, yeah, you know, this is a – career yeah. that I can do um, and, I, and actually like I, I feel like now I'm doing the best comedy of my life I think I'm, I'm I'm better than I've ever been and I feel like 
you know, it's like I'm doing gigs that I previously didn't think I was capable of, and I feel like I'm at a level now where yeah, I can compete. And I think actually maybe two or three years ago, I was all right at comedy, but I was probably put up my weight a bit with some of the gigs that I was getting, and I had a bit of um, what's the word I'm looking for? When you uh, like outsider syndrome, imposter syndrome. syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I get in Boston, Germany, and I quite often be at a gig, and I look at the rest of the lineup, and I think, oh, they're they're better than me. You know, I'm the weak link. I'm going to be the worst one, and that's not a healthy way to be before mm-hmm. a gig. Where, whereas now, I see myself on a bill, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I deserve to be here, and I think I'm good enough, and I've got this in my locker, and it's then you enjoy it more. And when you enjoy it more, you're having a a better gig. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the the best and the worst then. So, what's your highest high and what's been the the lowest low? If we haven't talked about it already, um, low, lowest low for sure was mm. Birmingham Junglers. In my, I, I've been doing comedy for about fourteen months. Yeah, I I got to the semi final of So You Think You're Funny in my first year, which is like a new art competition. Yeah, semi final and the semi final was at the Edinburgh Fringe. It was the very very first time I'd been to the Fringe. I was only there for one night just for the semi final. And uh, it was really cool. It's in a, it's in a sold out gig, and it's like I think yeah. like three hundred people there. Probably the biggest gap performed today. I went for a piss before the gig, and in the toilet, and I went into the <laughs> wrong toilet, and I went into like this private toilet at the Gilded Balloon. And uh, Eddie Izzard was in there putting his uh, well her makeup on, um, and I remember thinking like, this is the fringe. Like I'm in a dressing room with Eddie Izzard. This is so cool. <laughs> and I, I went out and died on my ass. I had like a. With, <laughs> So you think you're funny. It's an amazing gig, but I just I just didn't do very well. I had not been I, – I hadn't done a gig, I think, at that point to more than about 30 people because I was doing open mics in, like, pull-back rooms. Right. So I didn't use a microphone properly. I didn't realise that you really <laughs> have to, like, put a microphone in your mouth because I was just used to pub gigs where sort of everyone could hear you anyway. Yeah. So I didn't even the 300 people. I like the front, like, two rows could hear me. And I was, <laughs> I was a bit laddie. There were jokes about, like, dogging, and there were jokes about – uh, like sex and stuff. Uh, it was jokes that an 18-year-old boy thought were funny. Right. And did well at like, you know, boozy pub gigs, but at an <laughs> arts festival kind of get frowned upon. And I, I died on my ass. And afterwards, yeah. lovely, lovely Julia Chamberlain, who is um, one of the industry's comedy heroes and is a, is a very nice woman and has been working in comedy for years and years and years and has seen loads of new acts come through and rise through the ranks. And she put her arm around me and said... Um, basically said you were rubbish uh, <laughs> but um, you've definitely got something you can tell a story and I think yeah. you would do well in a weekend comedy club and you should learn how to do a weekend comedy club because I think that that is where your future lies but arts festivals might not be for you <laughs> uh, and she took a real punt on me and put me through an open spot at Birmingham Junglers which if anyone does, doesn't know, it's a comedy club that no longer exists. But it was like Friday and Saturday night, and it was like right. stag do's, hen do's, birthday parties, rugby clubs, football clubs, right. like big thing. And it tends to be very laddie and very boisterous. And I got booked to do an open spot, and I went, it was like, it was nuts, mate. And, like, and <laughs> to be able to handle a room like that. Yeah. Weekend comedy club comedians get a lot of stick, and they are yeah. often looked down upon, and it's very unfashionable. But it is hard, man. It, it is like you have to be really, really good at stand-up comedy to be able to do well in those comedy clubs. Yeah. And, and the compare was like fighting with the audience, like just <laughs> like like it was a 
bare pit. And the, <laughs> you know, the, the comp air could not, could barely get a sentence out. The opening act went out and like a, a veteran stand-up pro died on their ass. Like 20 minutes. I think they did about 16 and a half, like the minimum they could get away with to still get paid like six and a half. <laughs> Got almost nothing. And then the middle act, who was supposed to go on before me doing my five-minute spot, uh, the middle act couldn't get there. So the headliner, who was Adam Bloom, who was an amazing comedian, yeah. said, I don't mind going on in the middle. What is the middle <laughs> act for the headline? So the person running the show went, all right, Adam, you go out. And Adam walked out, and it was just – and Adam is he's such a great comedian, but he's also a hardened pro. He's done army gigs and all this sort of stuff where it really puts hairs on the chest. And Adam walked out, just like front row, stag do. All right, stag stand up. And the stag stood up and he gave the stag a dressing down and everyone <laughs> in the room cheered. It's like office party, office yeah. party. Who's the boss? Boss stands up, gives the boss a dressing down, everyone cheered. And then somebody <laughs> called him a, uh, a very nasty word that begins with C, to the, Adam. And Adam just fought them back and then somebody else heckled him and he fought them back. And Adam walked off stage after 20 minutes to a, like a standing ovation. That's the, and the compare walked out and said, keep that applause going. That's Alex Hilton. And I think people just thought that was going to be what happened. So I, I didn't, the compare didn't go, we've got a new act for you or anything like that. So I had to go do five minutes and I walked out onto the stage. And I think I got called that same nasty word that begins with C. About seven times between walking from the side of the stage, I got to the microphone. And I remember, like, my hands shaking as I held the microphone. And I used (laughs) – I'd, like – I'd also, at that point, I'd never had a heckle before. It just had not happened. I've been doing comedy, like, just over a year, like, really lovely supportive new at night, over my nights. And I had, like, one heckle put down prepared that I had, like – planned in the mirror at home and I said that out loud <laughs> um, got nothing so I just tried to do my five minutes of material and just the room was having none of it and I remember on the stage right there was a big tech pack of lads at this comedy club they sit at tables and I remember this big group of lads like banging on the table shouting that nasty word that begins with C over and over and over again oh, man. and I, I remember saying I think everybody in this room hates me. <laughs> like the roof came. It was like Aston Villa had scored. Like the whole room <laughs> cheered. Like people from the, off the street were coming in to cheer. And <laughs> I just put the microphone back in the stand. And I walked off. And I think someone threw a pint at me as I walked off the stage. And, um, and I remember sitting back in the green room. And Adam Bloom just said, that wasn't the worst I've ever seen, don't worry. And it was like, <laughs> are you sure? Because that was definitely like the worst that I've ever seen. And I was the one saying it. And Adam went, like, after, like, it was lovely. You know, he kind of said, like, he went, um, it's not the worst that I've ever seen. You should have seen me back at, like, whatever. You know? <laughs> it was really nice to see someone amazing who yeah. just absolutely ripped the gig going, oh, I was worse than you once. Um, and he gave me, like, a couple of tips. And he went, you know what, like, you're, you're far too new to be in this kind of environment, but you keep doing it. You know, that joke and that joke you said was really funny. And, like, um, you've got something. And uh, it, it was very nice. And I, I didn't want to be in the venue anymore. And I left the venue, and I was walking back to my car. Yeah. And I just thought, I don't think I can ever do comedy again. I, I, like, this isn't for me like I clearly haven't got what it takes um, <laughs> uh, and then my phone rang the next morning 
to say, can you do a gig uh, doing support for Rufus Hound? He's doing, he's doing a gig near Leicester. He's doing a charity gig. Mm-hmm. And it's a gig in a pub, but Rufus Hound's going to be there. And they want someone to go and do like 10 minutes before. And I, would, I just kind of thought, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And then I had a lovely gig. And I just thought, you know, I'll, yeah, I, I am funny. I can't, I've got jokes. I'm just not good enough. And I remember what Adam Bloom said. And yeah. that was like definitely the worst gig I, I ever had. But by like so far, so far. <laughs> um, and that's much more interesting than me telling the story about my, my favorite gigs. Like, because that's just me going... You know, I got to do Montford Hall to 1,500 people in my yeah. hometown. That was lovely. I really enjoyed that. That's a, a treasured memory. Yeah. I worked in a bar at the time doing the Montford Hall, and I used to work every Friday afternoon in the bar, and I, the boss at the pub used to let me go early if I had a gig. Yeah. And I, set, I got the... I said to the boss, I said, oh, I'm, I'm doing a gig at DeMonte Hall. And the bar was round the corner of DeMonte Hall. And he said, well, do you want an early finish before your big gig at DeMonte Hall? And I said, no, I think I'd quite like to work late. Like, <laughs> I work at the gig, at the pub, until seven. And then the show starts at eight, and I'll walk around the corner to the venue. And it was really fun, because I was pulling pipes in the pub, and it was quite busy for people yeah. who were coming to the show at DeMonte Hall serving people and listening to them talk about the show before and then <laughs> then walking around to the gig and doing the gig and people are people in the gig being like oh wasn't he wasn't he at the pub, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, the pub? and that was so cool like walking up to the show like with people in the audience and walking up from the pub to yeah. the venue and being like yeah this is cool man and like sitting backstage at all the like rock bands that have played at all and all the great comedians that have played there. And then going back to my the pub that I worked in and the pub that I used to like drink in at the time and, and like having a pint yeah. at the bar. I'd be like, yeah, that was cool. That was cool, you know? Yeah. Um, so when, you, when you're going to go on stage, do you have the same anxieties when you started out? Are you going on thinking, well, this could be like the five minutes I did when I followed Adam Bloom? Or, or are you thinking this could be another De Montfort Hall? What, what, what's going through your mind? I think part, part, part of it now... Like, that Adam, I mean, this could be tempting fate. That gig with Jonglers, yeah. following Adam Bloom, absolutely rip it in a bear pit, um, should never happen to me again. Like, I, like that, it, it will never be as bad as that, which is quite liberating, knowing that no matter how bad a gig goes, it will never be like that ever again. I would like to think. I'm a young man, <laughs> my career to follow me, but uh, I would like to think. But I, I also feel that I'm, like, much more equipped to deal with, and I'm not now, I know I'm not the level that Adam Bloom was then, I still have a long, long way to go before I'm capable of doing that, but I'd like to, I would have handled that situation better if it happened to me last week rather than eight years ago. Right. Um, I think more now, 95% of the time on stage, I just, I'm just thinking about like, this is going to be fun, it's going to be enjoyable, and it's, I get to be paid money to have fun now, that's what happens yeah. next, and I just try to put myself in the mood of this is going to be enjoyable, because um, I think an, like an audience infinitely have more fun with you if you're having fun and that's what I'm thinking about and I think like I've, even when a gig is going to be a little bit tricky I'm much more equipped to handle it if it is not quite right yeah. you know or if there's like an audience member that's been difficult or you get to a gig and like I don't know the mic's a bit weird or you know it's like set up so <laughs> You know, noise coming from the that kind of that sort of stuff. Like, I'm much more equipped to deal with that now, and I think I get to enjoy it. Right. Um, if I'm ever nervous about a gig, I mm. weirdly think back 
to op- like open mic gigs. Right. When I used to have to like travel to a gig and do five minutes or ten minutes, and I wouldn't get any paid for it. I wouldn't even get a free drink or anything like that. Yeah. I used to like basically pay to perform. I just think about how lucky I am that I'm in that one percent of people who ever go to an open mic night. Yeah. That one or two percent that eventually get to a point where they get paid money to do comedy, and what a privilege that is. And <laughs> you know, like I always think about how impressed I would be by myself if I met myself 10 years ago that I am a professional comedian, like, like, like yeah. how cool I would find that. And, it, and whenever I'm nervous about a gig, which happens sometimes if it's a big gig or there's like someone that I need to impress that's at the gig or anything like that, or it's I can tell it's going to be hard work. I just mm. think you 10 years ago would be really impressed with how far you've come. And me five years ago would be impressed. And I like, I hope to think me a year ago, would look at me now and think he is a better comedian than me, you know. I, 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 right. And in the same way that there are loads of comedians that I look at and just go, "Oh God, they are so much better than me." I also like to think that maybe there are other comedians lower down the chain that are starting out that look yeah. at me and go, "Oh, he is so much better than me," you know. Like, and that every time I look up at someone and go, "They're really good," and I will never yeah. be that good. I do. I think the most positive way of thinking about it is that there are open micers that see me and think, oh, wow, I'll never be, I'll never be able to do 20 minutes in a comedy club, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, and I, I, I know where I am in the comedy world. Okay. I think I'm a fourth division footballer. <laughs> I'm a fourth division comedian. Right? Are, you a, are you a football fan at all? Uh, I am not, unfortunately, no. I was right. going to talk about your love of football. So it, I mean, it's beautifully it segued. A metaphor that I use all the time. <laughs> but, and I think it's I think it's quite I find it quite useful to think about where you are. Yeah. So like the Champions League comedians, like your Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal, that is like your Michael <laughs> McIntyre, Peter Kay. Like they yeah. are gonna be they make all the money and they're gonna be playing in the biggest venues, and that will probably always be the case. Unless yeah. there's some terrible scandal that means something happens that they drop. In the same way that Liverpool are going to be the, one of the best teams forever because they've got all the money and all the power and unless some of all happens. <laughs> then below that, you've got your Premier League comedians that are on TV every week and yeah. um, they sell theatres and they're probably always going to be around and occasionally they drop down. They're like your comedy club, like they're playing the Glee Club and the Comedy Store. They're like your second division comedians where they earn really good money and they do a really good job, but they're not on TV and or if they are, it's very rare. And they play in very respectable stadiums, but outside of proper comedy fans, most yeah. members don't know who they are. In the same way that like die-hard football fans know about second division footballers, but your armchair fan doesn't care. Where I'm at is like a fourth <laughs> division comedian, where I do not earn very impressive money. In the same way that fourth division footballers earn like enough for a mortgage and a nice car, but nothing. And I, I get to do it as a job, but I have no celebrity status outside <laughs> of like very close to where I live in the same way that footballers who play for Northampton Town have a little bit of fame in Northampton, but outside <laughs> of like a 10 mile radius, no one knows or even cares who they are. It's very much how I feel. But I get to do this for a job and no one can take that away from me. I get to do this for a job. I'm a professional standard. <laughs> I know where I am in the pecking order. Uh, that's sort of how I feel about comedy, is that there are amateur footballers 
that would love to play for Northampton Town. <laughs> like people playing the pub league would fucking like would shorten their life by ten years to play one season for Northampton Town. <laughs> and yet there'd be players at Northampton Town thinking like, Oh, why why can't I play in the Premier League? Yeah. Yeah, I live in somebody else's dream. And that's whenever I'm nervous about a gig or I feel like I get to that's what I think about going, there are you are living someone else's dream. Even if it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> driving my shitty Ford Fiesta away from a <laughs> in a horrible pub somewhere. I love that. I mean, yes, your love of football. A little while back, you did a there's a series of videos of you on YouTube talking about football. Yeah. Um, I also particularly enjoyed uh, a, a thing you did from 2016 where you did a, f- a fake tour of Old Trafford. Is that, is that 2016? Is it that old? 2016. Right. Yeah, I've got. Still share it every year, mate. Still share it. Every year. <laughs> yeah. Does your love of football does it influence your comedy? Does it? Uh, do you want to do more on the uh, as a like a pundit, perhaps? Um, yes, yes and no. I mean, like the, the frustrating thing was so um, a, a friend of mine started like a YouTube thing right. that was about Manchester City, which is the, the team that I support. Uh, he asked me, like, as a comedian, when I was very, very early, like, I've only been in comedy a couple of years, I was still at university, Yeah. if I wanted to, like, write some sketches and be involved and kind of be on their YouTube channel as, like, a kind of alternative voice. Yeah. And it was such a good opportunity for me because I had to, like, write jokes every week and think of funny ideas. And, like, it was a really good habit to have when you were starting out. Yeah. And the channel got bigger and it started to make a little bit of money and I was kind of getting paid to do a thing and it was cool. Um, and more and more people started to watch it. So I was getting like followers and people coming to gigs because they wanted to see me do stand up, which yeah. was really cool. I try not to talk about football on stage because mm. I, I'm aware that, you know, most of the country don't actually care about football. It is <laughs> so I, I know that it will bore audiences. I, I would like to do like a football themed show one day i think i'd like to do like an audience thing and right i've done like a few like corporate gigs where uh like i've interviewed a footballer and that kind of thing yeah and i've been lucky enough to be like a bit of like i did bbc5 live a couple of times doing jokes about football which is like a really fun cool you know thing yeah. um but the problem was with blue moon rising which was the the channel was um we didn't actually own the channel so we made the videos for it but very yeah. early doors in return for an hd camera and access to all of these cool facilities yeah. the channel uh, was owned by by a company so any money the channel made they got the money we got right. a little bit but we also got to use like a tv quality camera so our videos looked really cool and professional and we got like a graphic designer and stuff but it meant that we got an email one day to say, oh, by the way, we sold the channel to another company. And it was like, all oh, right, the company's owned in London. And they wanted it to be really serious. And they wanted it to be like angry football fans, yeah. in their opinion. And it would, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to be giving serious thoughts on football because I wanted to be a comedian that was talking about yeah. football. So I kind of left it all behind. And I, I've had like a couple of offers to, I got off like a betting advert um, and I, I did one because they mm-hmm. wanted to be a series. Yeah. I did one and we filmed for like an hour and a half and I said about three semi-serious things <laughs> um, in that hour and a half and I said loads of stupid stuff <laughs> but I think very clearly intended with, as jokes 
Yeah. And then what got released was like a two-minute advert of me saying the three semi-serious things <laughs> yeah. back to back <laughs> with like flame emojis of like football <laughs> fan tells it like it is. And then me then saying something really preposterous. And I just got <laughs> so many tweets of really angry football fans going, you're an absolute idiot. You're a disgrace. How could you think that? You're a moron. <laughs> and like, there was this thing where I'd said something, I'd gone on like a ridiculous rant that I think was really funny. And I said, well, if that comes true, I'll get a tattoo on my ass." And that, the rug got cut out. And what got broadcast was me going, and I'll get a tattoo on my ass. <laughs> like thousands and thousands of blokes tweeting me, like literally thousands of people, all of them grown men. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is about having the hashtag be kind yeah. <laughs> Twitter bio that makes you behave like a knobhead on the internet. Yeah. But like, like grown men, like holding children in their profile picture tweeting me at four in the morning going, oh, where's the tattoo on your ass? And it was just like, I, I cannot deal with this at all. And I would have been up for getting a tattoo on my ass. Like I would have done that for, uh, if a betting company had paid me a thousand pounds, I would have done a video where I'd gone to a tattoo parlor and got a tattoo on my ass. I would have done it. <laughs> I just thought, this is going to make the worst people happy. Every single one of those people who tweeted me going, where's that on your ass? I hope they're miserable. And yeah. anything <laughs> given them even a moment of joy, I just was like, I don't want any part of that. So I decided not to. So I'm kind of not doing football stuff at the minute. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> do, you, do you still go out and watch comedy with the same passion as you did when you went to your 100 plus shows? Um, yeah, yeah. But it's very different, I think. Yeah. Um, the comedy club that I used to go to every week yeah. uh, is at the same level that I'm at now. So uh, a lot of the comedians that play at that level are like my mates. So right. um, I, I don't go out and watch my mates very often because it feels like going... And also, I'm very much aware that comedy is my job. So the person that I am most likely to go to comedy with is my girlfriend and I feel like going to a comedy night with my girlfriend right. descends very quickly into me hanging out with my mates at a show and I feel like that's like me it's basically me taking her to work you know and that, that I think that is yeah. not <laughs> so um I go and see loads of stuff at Edinburgh I try and see two shows a day in Edinburgh if I can I yeah. try and see one show that is a friend and someone that I like and someone that I want to support and I want to see what they're doing and I want to like kind of, I'm interested. Yeah. And I try and see one person that I've not seen before. Yeah. Uh, and that show almost at random, I think. Uh, I have like a rule in Edinburgh that I will, like the very first flyer that I get given, I will go into that show. Unless it clashes with me, I'll go into that show. Yeah. I've seen some real shit, but I've also seen some great shows yeah. that um, I would never have bought a ticket to, but have changed the way that I think about comedy or have been really thoughtful and mm. uh, I think that's a really good practice to have I think even if you don't do comedy I think just if you're interested in comedy go and see a show that you otherwise yeah wouldn't see I think you know you, you might discover something and it might change the way that you think um yeah and then I always if I can I'll stay and watch the rest of the lineup on a gig because I, I right. you know I like watching other comedians and I really enjoy watching other comedians yeah uh, if I'm free I'll go and watch um, a new material night in Leicester because I like I like watching yeah. new comedians come through and I, I like supporting it. And I think 
it's a good practice to have. But if I'm, I'll be honest with you, if I've not got a gig on a Friday or a Saturday night, I could go out and watch comedy. But I now, because Fridays and Saturday nights are so off are so rare, and my partner is a civilian and she works nine to five. Right. It's more like I will make the most of a Friday night out and, and go yeah. and go for dinner or something like that because that's uh, she's very accommodating for the fact that I am never home when she is and it can feel sometimes like we're housemates rather than in a romantic relationship <laughs> because uh, she gets in from work at like half six which is normally when I'm off out to a gig so we kind of high five in the hallway <laughs> uh, I update her on what the dog has done and if the dog needs walking or feeding and then <laughs> then I, I come home and I sleep in the spare room because if I get back after midnight she'll be asleep so I sleep in the spare room because I want to wake her up because she has to be up at work, work early and then Friday night I'm out and then Saturday we hang out on Saturday afternoon but that normally is like we do our big shop you know and then we <laughs> maybe clean the house a bit do some laundry and then I go out to a gig on a Saturday night. So, you know. And do you, when you do uh, get the opportunity to see comedy, when you see all these new shows, do you see them as an audience member? Do you take the jokes at face value or are you an analyst saying, yes, I knew they would do that or I didn't see that coming or I would have done that differently? Yeah. I, I mean, I saw, I saw John Kearns at him this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had, uh, it was just in like a work in progress kind of mess about hour type thing, bits and pieces. And oh. I, I, I saw it with good kids who were great if you huge oh, yeah. and lovely boys as well. Um, Actually, lovely boys are a different sketch group. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but good kids, lovely boys were not present at that occasion, but good kids <laughs> are lovely boys. And the lovely boys are good kids. They all weren't. Um, very accurate names. But on this occasion, I saw them with John Kurtz, with the sketch group, good kids. Uh, lovely boys were not present. As far as I'm aware, it was a big gig. They might have been there, but they were not sat with us. I did not come for an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet beforehand. Um <laughs> Which I thoroughly recommend, by the way, if you ever get the opportunity to hang out with good kids. Boy, are they great company at an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet. Anyway, <laughs> very irrelevant. Saw John Kearns. Loved it. Really, 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 really enjoyed it. And I think part of my enjoyment was that I came out of it thinking, oh, I just had a nice time there. And I didn't actually worry too much about yeah. you know, what's happening. I think um, when you do comedy and you write comedy, you kind of can see behind the curtain sometimes and you can kind of see the formula. And I don't mind that. I find it quite interesting. I think yeah. I think if somebody is using the same trick over and over again, I find it quite frustrating. And I think audiences can kind of see that too as well. And that is like unique to comedians yeah. or comedy fans. I think that is just most audiences will work that out eventually if you're doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. But I don't worry too much about it. And then when, I, when I've seen stuff that is like really groundbreaking, Mm. It does make me like I have a real appreciation for it. Like, like Trickery Wakenshaw uh, is one of the top ten shows I think I've ever seen, right. and I saw that. I think I saw Nautilus, which I think was his third show. I'm not sure, but for people who are aware of Trickery Wakenshaw, he kind of combines like clowning and mime and a little bit of dance into a live live show, and I saw him quite early on in my comedy career when I was a little bit nervous around clowning and I hadn't really discovered that side of comedy yet. And people went, oh, it's amazing. You've got to see it. And I, I got I got a sort of last minute ticket and I thought, you know what? I, I would never buy a ticket to a clowning show. Yeah. I'll go and see it. And the most impressive thing about the show was he was doing old school gags, old school pull back and reveal, you know, 
1970s as in they were like problematic. <laughs> 1970s as in they were like pub jokes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Man, yeah. To our bar style jokes. And what was so impressive about it is he didn't say a word for 30 minutes. <laughs> it, I, I thought this is like someone doing proper gags and yet has taken language out of the equation and just yeah. by flailing his arms around and shuffling his knees is making a hundred people laugh to proper like one-liners uh, and everybody knows what's going on i think the first word he says in that show is velociraptor and i just thought this is so inventive and playful and it made me just think so much about um what you're doing with your body and you should be so aware of what your arm is doing and what you're you know what shape you're in on stage because it, it makes it gives so much away to an audience and i think came out of that and thought oh yeah man i am so different a comedian to trivia waking show i'm so at the opposite end of the spectrum but i can definitely like, learn from that yeah and i like that that is i think that is such a healthy thing to have i think like i now i watch a lot of alternative stuff hmm. i watch a lot of clowning and i watch a lot of the kind of weirdos crowd and the bob's blunderbuss crowd and hmm. Because it is so far from what I do, I think I enjoy it almost more than regular stand-up, I think, because it feels like a, a treat. And I, I see so much great forward stand-up that I guess it, it's something that I don't really get to see the rest of the year until Edinburgh Festival or until Leicester Festival a little bit. Yeah. Um, and also, I think it's the thing that is furthest from me. And I think it's the most interesting that I want to learn from it. And I always go and see Jos Norris and I always go and see you know that whole gang because I think they write right right in a way their brains are just different to mine you know <laughs> and it, it it makes me sad when i when i see that crowds there's one or two people in that crowd that slag stand up off a lot right i i think the best stand up comics who do like storytelling yeah like there's a lot of clowns that could learn from stand up and there's a lot of stand ups that could learn from clowning you know yeah alex where can we find out about what you're doing how can we find out how to see you live um I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter and I'm on social media as Alex Paris Hillwood, yeah. H-Y-L-T-O-N. Yeah. That is a username I created at 14 and I have lived to regret, particularly as Paris <laughs> Hilton is like fading from um, the public yeah. eye, but we, we, we'll we live with it. Um, I've got a mailing list that does the shows. You can find that through Instagram. And, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll be at the Edinburgh Fringe this year. My show is called um, I Won't Let Failure Go to My Head. <laughs> I'm at Brighton Festival. I'm at Glasgow Festival in 2023. So finally then, Alex, can you please sum up for me? What is comedy in a nutshell? Oh, God. Comedy is just jokes, man. It's just funny. It's just fun. It's people saying silly things. That's what comedy is. And my pet peeve, Yeah. I don't like it when comedians or social commentators or anyone says, well, comedy should be this. People go, you know, Comedy should challenge things, man, or comedy should just be daft. <laughs> the only thing comedy should be is funny. And if you, you can achieve that in any way, then you are doing comedy. Perfect. Beautifully put. Alex, thank you so much. It's been a privilege. A pleasure, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> it's been, and this is the first uh, conversation I've had today. It's been a real treat. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you, man. Anytime. Thank you so much yes. again. Appreciate it. No worries. See you soon. 